Hello, my name's Sophie and I'm here to talk about my paper that was recently published in the Journal of Small Animal Practice entitled Com Coagulation Status in Dogs with Naturally Occurring Angiostrongus Visorum Infection. Um, I'd like to say my thanks first to Pet Savers who funded the study which allowed me to do it and also to the Comparative Coagulation Laboratory at Cornell University who did all the analyses. First of all, I'd like to just have a brief chat about why I decided to do this study um, before talking a little bit more detail about the findings and potentially where we'll go from here. So when I first started working at the University of London, so the Royal Veterinary College in 2002, we saw quite a large number of dogs that were presenting with a variety of clinical signs, including bleeding, but also neurological signs. So dogs that were off their back legs or presenting with acute onset seizures that didn't seem to fit the typical pattern um, that we would expect for dogs that uh, presented with these signs. And we were identifying that many of these dogs were infected with Angiostrongus visorum, which is the lungworm of the dog in the UK. And at that time, there was very little known about the parasite, at least in the UK. I was barely taught about it in my undergraduate course. And it was thought to be relatively endemic to the south part of Wales and also parts of Cornwall and Ireland. So... It was quite interesting, first of all, that we were seeing it in the southeast of the UK and also that we were seeing the severity of clinical signs that we were associated with this. So I became quite interested in the disease and in particular in ways in which we could manage these dogs. It seemed that the best way we had of managing them at that time was to treat them for their angiostrongolus as quickly as we could and their bleeding signs resolved relatively quickly after that. However, in a small proportion of dogs, they unfortunately succumbed to the disease and actually died as a result of it. So based upon this we put together a grant proposal that we submitted to Pet Savers and we were fortunate enough to receive funding for that um, and we were able to do our study um, at that time. We based our study on what was known at the time and unfortunately there was very little known. Most of the literature um, were case reports and identified a variety of different things that were happening in dogs that had bled as a result of angiostrongus visorum. So people had discussed potentially disseminated intravascular coagulopathies, otherwise known as DIC, immune-mediated thrombocytopenia and acquired von Willebrand's factor deficiencies, as well as decreased factor concentrations as potential causes. And some of these were, well, the majority of these were case reports and just single case reports, and a few of them were experimental studies. There was no unifying theory, and it seemed that all these different cases were presenting different changes in the coagulation system that were leading to relatively similar clinical signs. So we based, tried to put everything together that was currently known and came up with a proposal for a study which would look at those findings that had been previously identified, so looking at von Willebrand's levels, looking at markers of DIC, and also looking at changes in secondary coagulation in addition to looking at um, thromboelastography, which is a global evaluation of coagulation and would help us to see how affected dogs were that presented with both bleeding signs and non-bleeding signs. The other benefit of thromboelastography is that it actually allows us to identify whether the patients have increased risk of coagulation, so hypercoagulability as well as hypocoagulability. So our study was based upon this and we 
prospectively enrolled dogs. And at the time that we submitted the grant application, we were seeing a lot of cases. So we were seeing something like 60 cases a year of androstrongolus referred to the um, Royal Veterinary College. Unfortunately, around the time, or rather fortunately, around the time that we received funding for the study, um, a well-known anthelmintic became licensed for treatment of androstrongolus. And on the back of that, we saw reducing numbers of cases referred, I think partly because there was increased awareness in the area and people knew how to manage, identify and treat these patients. So we decided that we would prospectively enrol dogs. Um, and because Diagnosis was sometimes delayed at that point because we were relying on faecal um, examination rather than a blood test that we have now. We were enrolling them on a presumptive diagnosis and we had seen enough dogs that we were pretty happy that we could presumptively diagnose which patients would have androstrongolus. And we took blood at that time for routine coagulation testing and also to allow us to evaluate markers of thrombosis and fibrinolysis so markers of activation of coagulation. And at the same time, we were also performing thromboelastography. So just for those of you who are, don't know very much about thromboelastography, it is a viscoelastic method, which means that it looks at the amount of movement there is within the clot um, that assesses global hemostasis. So it looks at the blood from the moment that it's liquid through its initial coagulation phase and through to the point where it forms a solid clot. And actually, if you carry on the analyses, it will look and see how much fibrinolysis occurs. Um, it's an in vitro test rather than an in vivo test, but it does provide us with a little bit more information than looking at just markers of secondary coagulation, so PT and PTT, because it does also I look at the primary coagulation within the methodology that it uses. TEG is actually quite a simple technique. So you get some blood from your patient, which is citrated, so it's anticoagulated, and you pop it into a little cup. And then you activate that blood sample using calcium to antagonise the citrate. Um, and then essentially a little cap is put onto the cup. You lift it up into the machine and the cap rotates within the cup. The machine then measures the amount of movement that there is between the cap and the cup and that is graphically represented and from that we are able to get a number of different measures which look at different things. So the first thing that you find is the amount of time it takes for the blood to go from a very liquid state to the beginning of coagulation. You then get two measures that are related to the speed at which the clot then forms and then you get a final measure which tells you how strong that final clot is. And as I said before if you let the it run on for a long time you'll allow you'll get more markers which tell you how much clot lysis there is so it tells you a little bit about the fibrinolytic pathways although most of the time we don't look at that so we performed this um, test on our blood to enable us to get a little bit more information about the clotting that was occurring in dogs um, presenting with angiostrongolus and what we did in this study which was a little bit different to previous case reports is that we looked at dogs that presented with and without bleeding signs. So we were trying to see if there were changes in coagulation in dogs that presented with other signs, so for example for, with a cough, or we had a few cases in there that had presented with hypercalcemia. So what did we find? Uh, we found that at the very most basic level, dogs that were bleeding had abnormalities in their TEG, which would be indicative of a bleeding problem. So they were hypocoagulable on their TEGs. 
We got platelet counts in only a few dogs, unfortunately, so only just over 50% of the dogs that were presented. And in most of these, there weren't severe decreases in the number of platelets that were present, but there were mild decreases in some of them. But we felt that the decrease in platelet count was not responsible for the changes in coagulation that we were seeing. Coagulation times, so PT and PTT, which are measures of secondary coagulation, were most commonly normal in dogs that were not bleeding. And in dogs that were bleeding, about 50% of the time they were abnormal. So in 50% of the time, coagulation times were normal in dogs that presented with bleeding, indicating that there may well be something else going on, as well as changes in secondary coagulation. Antithrombin was normal in most dogs and in disseminated in intravascular coagulopathy or um, consumptive coagulopathies, that's commonly low, but it didn't seem to be abnormal in our case series at all. So this didn't really open up any new avenues for, for um, investigation or reveal anything. But we did find that D-dimers, which are little markers of fibrinolysis, were increased in 90% of the dogs. So it was increased whether the dogs had signs of bleeding or not. Um, if you have a widespread inflammatory process, you may well get activation of coagulation and therefore it's quite common to see increases in D-dimers as a result of that. And it may well be a process that's associated with an intravascular coagulopathy, so most commonly that would be DIC. Von Willebrand's factor was measured in most of the dogs that we had and there were a variety of changes, but most of the time these were unlikely to be relevant in our dogs. And so again, this was sort of discounted as a common or unifying theory in these cases. And fibrinogen, which was the final marker of coagula coagulation that we measured, was decreased in 8 and increased in 8. So it either went up or went down, it was rarely normal. In disseminated intravascular coagulopathies, that's most commonly low. And in inflammatory processes, it tends to go up. So changes that we might expect to see with um, a process such as angiostrongylus vasorum potentially. Interestingly, there were no differences in antithrombin, D-dimers or von Willebrand's factor in dogs that were bleeding versus those that were not bleeding, but there was a big difference between the dog with, that were bleeding and not bleeding with fibrinogen. So fibrinogen was significantly lower and very much so in dogs that were bleeding versus those that were not bleeding. So this may well be consistent with an intravascular coagulopathy and a consumptive process. So the fibrinogen is being used up in those dogs. The thrombolustograph was useful in that it identified a hypocoagulable state in dogs that were bleeding, but it was no better than physical examination. Interestingly, however, it did identify three dogs that were hypercoagulable, and hypercoagulability or increased tendency to clot is actually quite difficult to identify in dogs on physical exam. So this is actually quite an interesting finding on this study. And two of those three dogs had pulmonary hypertension, so it may well be that the pulmonary hypertension that we see in rare cases of angiostrongylus bazorum might well be associated with hypercoagulability. However, it may also be effect of the amount of inflammation that's occurring in the lung, which leads to both the hypercoagulability and the pulmonary hypertension. So it's a really interesting finding, but one that needs further work before we truly understand whether it's something that we should be targeting for therapeutic aims or whether we should just be ignoring and targeting the angiostrongylus. So overall, in some dogs, we found that angiostrongylus vasorum causes a bleeding tendency, which doesn't seem to be present in dogs that are not bleeding. Um, this isn't explained in all cases by abnormalities in secondary coagulation. So 
It may be that some of these dogs have alterations in their primary coagulation system, so their platelet function, because their platelet number is relatively normal, or potentially a problem with their fibrinolysis, so they're having excessive fibrinolysis. Um, D-dimers were increased in mo most cases, so this doesn't explain everything, but it's an interesting finding nonetheless. Um, this may well be supportive of uh, intravascular coagulopathy, so a disseminated process, or DIC, as many people suggested, was one of the causes of um, angiostrongylus vasorum causing the coagulopathy, and particularly because the increase in D-dimers and decrease in fibrinogen are more prominent in dogs that present with bleeding sign. But what's very difficult to know is whether these are cause or effect, whether we're seeing increases in D-dimers and decreases in fibrinogen because the dogs are bleeding rather than as a cause of that. As for therapy and where we go next, I think it would be really nice to be able to more um, closely evaluate primary coagulation in these patients and look at their platelet function. Treatment-wise, I don't think this has taken us a huge amount further, except to say that if there are abnormalities in PT and PTT, we should probably be treating them with fresh frozen plasma. But if the dogs are bleeding and they don't have changes in that, we're really stuck and it's very difficult to know how best to treat these patients. Some people have suggested the use of tranexamic acid, which is an antifibrinolytic that is used increasingly in people when there is risk of hemorrhage. Um, we certainly can use that in dogs, and its use has been described in a case series. Um, there are ongoing discussions as to the most appropriate dose of from, um, tranexamic acid, um, but it's certainly relatively safe and also relatively cheap, so it is a therapy that it would be good to evaluate. Um, the difficulty that we have is it's very difficult to assess efficacy of this drug in patients at the moment. Best of all, at the moment, I think we're left with therapy as um, the best treatment as early as possible and so identifying the dogs as quickly as you can and instituting effective therapy is likely to be the treatment that is most efficacious in our patients. Where does this research lead us? Well I think it'd be really good as I said before to evaluate platelet function and um, I don't have the, the facility to do that at the moment but it would be certainly something that I would love to be able to do. Um, and then I would really like to try and work out why we have these two populations. Essentially, we've got a population of dogs that bleed and a, doc a population of dogs that don't. What is it about those two populations that is different? What is it that makes some dogs bleed and some dogs not bleed? Is it genetic? Um, so we have two phenotypic presentations of this disease, essentially. It would be really nice to more closely identify whether there are other features that are associated with the risk for hemorrhage. So thank you very much for listening. I hope you found this informative. And um, if you have any questions, please do contact me on my email address. Thanks.